Like many of you, I've received a little bit of training on how to negotiate, and it always has included nice terms like compromise, meet in the middle, win-win, and as a lot of us have discovered, it's not so neat and tidy when you negotiate for real. On today's episode, practical advice from a former FBI agent on how to navigate the emotion of real-world negotiation. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 262. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you develop your leadership skills. And I'm really glad you tuned in today because today I have a guest that has already changed my thinking on a topic that for a lot of us is a topic that is a little bit uncomfortable, we don't feel very confident with, and that is the topic of negotiation. And negotiation is something we all know that we need to do, at least at points in our careers and in our personal lives. And I think for a lot of us, we probably do a lot more of it than we realize. Today's guest has changed my thinking and also changed the thinking of a bunch of folks in our mastermind community. And so I'm really excited to get to introduce him to you. And that gentleman is Chris Voss. He is the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group and the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation as well as the FBI's hostage negotiation representative for the National Security Council's hostage working group. And for those of you not familiar uh, extensively with the FBI, there's about 10,000 FBI agents at any one time. Only one person has that job. Chris currently teaches business negotiation in the MBA program at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business and at Georgetown University's McDonald School of Business. Chris, when a lot of us think about negotiation... We think about the word compromise, and you call compromise a dirty word. Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we think about both compromise and conflict. And, you know, the compromise, the best analogy, I think, is, you know, I got this really, really good gray suit that I really, really like, and I think I should wear brown shoes, and you think I should wear black shoes, so we compromise, and I wear one black and one brown. <laughs> 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 Not a real good answer. Yeah, no, unfortunately, we compromise because we're short on time or we're tired or a lot of different things are in our way, which, while the spirit of compromise is a good idea, the practice of it, in effect, is either we're lazy or we're worn out and we're just, you know, we don't, we, we're tired of the conflict and then we end up with a black shoe and a brown shoe. So, and then the real problem comes with implementation, because when you implement a compromise, it's just sloppy and ugly. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me, as you were saying that, my parents, when we were kids, went out to buy a car, and my dad really wanted a red car, and I remember my mom really wanted a blue one, and they came home from the dealer driving a white car. And I remember <laughs> even as kids, we were like, wait a minute, what happened? And my dad said, well, that's what compromise is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're both unhappy, therefore it was fair. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, that, that actually makes me think of another family story I've heard you tell about getting a Christmas tree 
Could you share that story? Because I think that's a really powerful yeah. example of this. Yeah, that's you know, one of my favorites because it combines a couple of things. One is never be so sure what you want that you wouldn't take something better. And, you know, using these ideas over Christmas tree, same, same strategies used in a billion-dollar Wall Street transaction or, or in leadership. You know, so husband and wife have a discussion over Christmas tree. Husband wants the artificial tree. He's got all his practical reasons. You know, it, uh, you buy it once, you put it away. There's no needles. It doesn't catch on fire. If we get pets, the pets don't want to sniff it, mark it, knock it over, all the things that pets do. You know, he's got all these great practical reasons for wanting the artificial tree. And his wife's just not hearing it. And he can't figure out, you know, why she's being so emotional about just not accepting his reason. And so at some point in time, you know, he asks himself, what, you know, what's driving her? And he just uses what we, we term as a label, which is a great way to gather information and uncover things. He says, you know, it seems like you had real trees go- growing up. And she comes back with like, yes, and I want our children to have the same joyful memories of the holidays that I had. And at that moment, like, bang, he's convinced and they get a real tree. And he realized it was better than what he really wanted in the first place. The thing I love about that story is not even just the tactical approach to it, but the fact that it illustrates what you were just talking about, about compromise, is... I think a lot of people would hear a story like that or think about that situation and think like, okay, we'll have an artificial tree in one room and we'll put the real tree in the other room or some version of compromise like you were talking about earlier. But right. he, he totally changed his perspective. It wasn't about winning per se as in the classical sense. It was about how do we get to a better answer? Right. And which is enormously much more satisfying when he begins to see, yeah, what makes a better answer? And the other person's probably got a perspective that's going to move both of you forward if you, if you find a way to pull it out of them. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in, in learning more about some of the tactical approaches. And one of the things I heard about you, even before we get into the tactical pieces, is that you started learning about negotiation by working a suicide hotline. Tell me more about that. What did you learn from working that hotline? Yeah, how crazy is that, right? A suicide hotline. Well, it was originally, it was the only way I could become a hostage negotiator because I had no qualifications otherwise. And then it gave me this enormous edge for the rest of my career. You know, I get up on the hotline and I begin to hear these skills and, and ways to interact with people that is just in crisis in varying forms. And in reality, you know, all of us are worried about something. And I just thought, you know, this stuff is, so powerful would it apply to everyday life and can I make it work across the board and in, you know really in not just listening because listening is a this sounds like not sexy not interesting you know uh, you can't say hey look let's have a great conversation about listening and that that, that probably sounds like a cure for insomnia to most people mm. but how to interact and how to hear the triggers the emotional triggers that are driving people and then how to how to interact with them, you know, in a very, on the hotline, it was a very compassionate way, but it was also very strategic because we are there intentionally on a hotline trying to manipulate someone into a better place that's better for their life. And we get into a lot of discussion as what's the difference between manipulation and influence. Manipulation has all these bad connotations. Right. And influence has the good connotations. They're synonyms. 
So a lot of it boils down to like, what's your objective? What's your motive? And a hotline, I'm trying to help people out. So it, it's not nefarious. Yeah, I'm absolutely trying to change your mind on the hotline and completely turn you in another direction. But it's going to be good for you. And maybe even if I'm in a position where, you know, as a leader, we've got a perspective where, like it or not, you know, we know more than our employees. We're in a leadership position because we've already demonstrated the talent and the depth of skill. And so you've got people that don't maybe, we got, you know, we've got to manipulate them into something that's good for them to give them a better job, to help the company, which helps them. And yeah, you know, how do you listen and then how do you hear those triggers and what do you do with it? That's what I learned on the hotline. So you've used the word manipulation a couple of times. Is that an intentional, I mean, you've defined the two, but why the word manipulation versus influence? Well, because then, uh, you know, I always get, almost always get the question like, well, isn't this manipulation? And I say, yeah, let's take a little bit farther because, you know, uh, emotional intelligence it's so powerful and you can influence people so massively that, yeah, there, there was an article out recently by Adam Grant, who's a brilliant writer, and, and he's written several phenomenal books. And it was called The Dark Side of Emotional Intelligence. And so, uh, you know, I like to ask somebody, uh, you know, if this is incredibly manipulative, if this is in fact manipulative, are you afraid to use it? Because bad people use it. And then I, I like to hold up my cell phone and I say, how many, bad, how many of you have these? But wait a minute, how can you use these? Because bad people use these also. So it's just a tool, and, it, and the tool is how you use it. And good leadership demands that. One of the things I noticed you state in the book is, well, you state really smart people often have trouble being negotiators. And you also, you refer to yourself a lot in the book, I noticed, as, you know, you're just kind of an average guy. You just happen to get some really good training and to be in you know, happen along this process in your career. Why do smart people have a tough time being negotiators? Yeah, you know, it's counterintuitive, but smart people and people that have, that are highly educated, because if you're really smart, you figure out in advance what the best deal is, which means you've got blinders on and you're going to go right past better answers. Oh, interesting. All right. So as a person who has a doctoral degree and has had spent too many years probably in higher ed, how do I, just on a personal level, how do I get myself out of that? Like when you, when you know a lot and you've been highly educated in a particular area, is there a way that you found when you're coaching people to get beyond that or set that aside or not be limited by that? Yeah. If I discover where is their self-talk in their head, like, are you smart enough to listen? And have you got to the point where you're going from education to wisdom? And which I think at that point, then everybody's striving for that, no matter how highly credentialed they are. You know, I, yeah, I want to learn. I want, I don't want to make that jump. And, and then when, if you're hungry for knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is realizing how much you don't know or admiring your intellect for another reason, your ability to process information, you know, as a leader, as a highly educated person, as a highly intelligent person. Maybe you've got the ability to absorb more information, and then, then the person on the other side is a source of source of more knowledge for me. So it's a little bit of self talk. Yeah. Um, my self talk really is, you know, if I'm not that smart, I got to listen. I got to figure it out because so many other people know so much more than I do. Fascinating. And and when you're, uh, I know you do a lot of work with business leaders these days too help them to navigate and understand negotiation and to utilize it more effectively. Uh, what do you find that is 
successful in getting people out of that mindset of I'm the smartest person in the room or I know this better than anyone else or or maybe has even had a lot of success doing that in the past. Is there a skill or a tactic or a train it's something they've done that's that's you see is helpful in that? Well, if they focus on the other person can help make them smarter. And then it's it's not a I'm smarter than you type of thing. And that hunger for knowledge and a desire to get ahead, I need, I need to look at the other person as opposed to don't want to look at them as an adversary or an employee or somebody be told what to do or a contest of egos. You can get your ego out of the way, then you have already demonstrated an enormous intellect. And let's take that capacity of intellect to make this great collaboration. You know, negotiation is really communication, in my view. And the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. And negotiation is another word that people say, well, I'm a leader. I, you know, I don't negotiate. I tell people. Or negotiation is an influence. Or they only see negotiation as when money's involved. Or even worse, what I'm seeing with women is negotiation has this connotation of Donald Trump. Mm. And not that many women want to be Donald Trump. Oh, interesting. So what it, So let's talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> so what is it about Donald Trump that maybe isn't the kind of negotiation that we'd want to perceive or what is it that people are misperceiving about that? Well, he's a great example of one of the negotiation types, one of the communication types that we view as the assertive. And what you see with the assertive in, in any field is they'll have a small, decent string of initial spectacular successes and then no one will deal with them anymore and they have to move on. And I was in New York. I got to New York in the mid-80s as Donald Trump was just starting to make his mark. And, and he had some spectacular successes. Grand Central Station, Woman Skating Rink, Trump Tower, three or four Trump buildings that are, that are still landmarks of New York City to this day. And nothing built after that. And he, had the, he owned the West Side of Manhattan Railroad Yards and envisioned the largest development pretty much in the history of mankind, tallest building on the planet. This phenomenal big development, but in his assertive approach to everything, enough people had gotten stung over his different business deals. You notice that that project never came through. So he moves to Atlantic City, puts off several spectacular hotels, and then things stop working for him in Atlantic City, and he moves on. And that's kind of what happens to the assertive negotiator, the, you know, the take no prisoners kind of guy. You uh, find out the hard way that you're making enemies that are, that are now sniping you. And since they don't want open conflict, they specialize in hamstringing you, backstabbing you. And the more of them you accumulate, then eventually the only way to be successful is move on. And now he's got a golf course in Scotland. He's got a golf course here. He's got a hotel development here. You notice not, none of his activities focus in any one place because unfortunately, you know, it's the sort of negotiator is like leaves a nuclear wasteland behind him and nobody wants to do business with him anymore. Well, that that's actually a really good lead into something I wanted to ask you about, which is you talk in the book about that the most important person sometimes in the negotiation is not the person that's in the interaction. Tell me more about that. Yeah, you know, that's great because the deal killers, the people that implement the deals are the ones that are going to kill the deals. And I've talked to a lot of companies recently. You know, they call it TNC. They come to an agreement right now on price. And then it takes them four months to work through the terms and conditions. And the lawyers come to the table after the deal has been signed and the red tape and a fine print. 
and it's just enormously exhausted. And those, those people are slowing things down because they wish they would have been part of the uh, process to begin with. The process would have gone much quicker if they'd have been brought in sooner. So they're not the court negotiation team, but boy, they are killing those deals. Another telecommunications company I talked to, we were talking to them about training, and they, we found out that fully 50% of their deals that don't go through are killed internally. 50%. Not because of price, but over terms and conditions, and the people that were never brought into the negotiation to begin with. You know, and that's the attorneys that review the documents, who on their side, they are, uh, they're annoyed that they're not part of the negotiation, so if it's not perfect, they're kicking it back. And these are the people that kill deals, 50% of the deals, in my estimation, and are the ones that go through, they slow things down. So the deal implementers, who are not designated as being part of the decision-making team, end up having the most influence on what happens to that deal. Fascinating. One thing I heard you talk about was um, how negotiation is perceived in the media or in just the broader cultural context. And you referenced uh, the example of the movie The Negotiator. And I guess there's a point, in, I, I saw the movie years ago, but I guess there's a point in the movie where the character's wife refers to the fact that he's a liar for a living. And you really push back on the notion that negotiation that should involve lying or deception. I'm really curious about that. And, and why is that? Because that's not something that I think a lot of people think about. Yeah, you know, lying and deceiving, deception either by commission, which is out and out lie, or omission, leaving, leaving out a material fact or something significant, is the equivalent of bearing a landmine that you will step on. And there isn't a liar out there that isn't got their eyes closed as soon as they make that deception, trying to get out of the deal before somebody steps on that landmine. A, la- a lie is a landmine that's going to get stepped on. And it ends up causing so much more damage long-term to people's reputations and to relationships that it's not worth it. It's, you know, it's the great time-saving hack in the moment that is just going to come back and haunt you. And I've had some people say, well, I'll lie if I've got enough time to fix it before things go bad. I mean, that, you know, that's, that's, that's putting a ticking time bomb on you. And people come to the point where they're just not going to lie anymore because they've, they've had so many of those bombs blow up on them. The damage is just not worth it. Take the extra time to fix something instead of lying because then the other side's going to find out. Eventually, if they're, if, they're, if they're not a better liar than you, they're going to find out because you're going to have implementation problems. And the other thing, too, is many times it's just a trap. Somebody's trying to lure you in to see if, see if you're lying. And because most people are better liars than we are. I'm not a great liar. My integrity is much more important to me in the long term. Well, and this is the case even when you were doing hostage negotiation with terrorists and all kinds of things that are some of the most difficult situations. You, no lying, no deception in those cases. Right. You know, and sometimes it might even be if you know there's a problem that's going to come up, I might even say, look, there's stuff I'm just not going to tell you. Or if you ask me something specifically designed to see if I'll lie or reveal the truth that, that I'm not ready to reveal, I'll say, look, I'm, you know, how am I supposed to answer that? I'm just not going to answer that. Mm-hmm. So you, anything that you want to lie about, chances are, if you just turn around and go, 
I'm not in a position to answer that question. And I never told you that I was going to, I told you I wouldn't lie to you, but I didn't say I'd reveal everything. And so this is an area I'm just not going to, I'm just not comfortable telling you about it right now. And that's really candid, real candor with people, even about stuff you can't tell them goes a long way. They really appreciate it. Well, it's, it's interesting that you look at negotiation of not just do you get what you, what you want in the moment, but later on, after the interaction happens, does that other party still feel like they were respected and, and taken care of? And I, I love the example in the book of the guy, the bad guy in the Philippines of what happened after the interaction. Could you share that story? Yeah, you know, we were driving in that negotiation. We beat him. I mean, he, he ended up losing everything in that negotiation. The hostage walked away. They were counting on a big payday. You know, their, their group was at a shambles, literally for a couple of years after that. And right after the hostage walked away, and our bad guy knew that the negotiator that I was coaching had beat him, he called him on the phone and said, have you been promoted? You know, I don't know what you did on that interaction. I don't know how you stopped me, but you deserve to be promoted. And so our currency was respect. And a bad guy that we had completely outmaneuvered and defeated, we did it in a way that the guy respected us and, and in fact, reengaged with us on another kidnapping on down the line. Oh, wasn't afraid to deal with us. One of the things that a lot of us have learned over the years is some of the art of compromise and the rational look at, you know, how do we get to a certain number and split the difference and all those traditional things. And you, you cite the book a bunch, Getting to Yes, and, you know, how a lot of the things in Getting to Yes are technically true, but it leaves out the emotional and the empathetic realities of most human interactions. I, I shouldn't say most, I should say all human interactions. Right. T- tell me about the progression here, because I've recommended getting yes many times, and I know a lot of people in our audience have listened to it. What are we learning now that we didn't know 10 or 15 or 20 years ago? You know, I think it's just, let's reset this whole conversation so that we're mo- we recognize that we're driven by emotions, we're driven by our passions, we're driven by what we care about from the very beginning. You know, I think the definition of negotiation is, you know, two parties confer, come to an outcome where both are beneficial. And getting TSS is a very rational approach to it, which makes all the sense in the world when you're reading it all by yourself. And no shortage of hostage negotiators that I trained, you know, I turned them on to getting to yes, and they'd be like, yeah, this makes sense. And I've never heard, there's two things. Uh, I always hear people re-getting the yes and say, this makes sense. I never hear anybody say, I used it to make a great deal. Mm. You know, there's, there's a breakdown someplace there. And, and, I, and I had the pleasure and the privilege of meeting Roger first Fisher a couple of times. Brilliant guy. Abs- utterly brilliant guy. And completely captivating in person. You know, he was, he was, a, he was really someone for all of us to learn from. You know, I think he wanted to write a book that was almost bulletproof intellectually, which then left out the emotional approach. And so now this is, all right, you know what? Hostage negotiators start with the people are are emotional, they're driven by what they care about. 
And what we found that that applies a thousand percent to our everyday interactions. You know, you mentioned before, in every deal, in every interaction, in every exchange, there's something more important than getting your way to each person. For a boss and an employee, how many employees have said, you know, I went to the boss, he heard me out, he or she heard me out. They didn't do anything that I wanted, but they heard me out. Because there's, there's one of those types that all they want is to know that you heard them. And then they can go along with whatever you want, as long as they've been heard. So there's always something more important to the interaction than agreeing. And many times it's, was I respected? Was I treated fairly? You know, we call, uh, the I say, had the F-bomb dropped in a negotiation today, somebody said they wanted to be treated fair. That's the F-bomb. <laughs> nice. Well, that makes me wonder how this works too. And one of our mastermind members was actually curious, who's read your book, was interested in how you get in the rhythm of getting ready for this. Like when you know you're walking into a business negotiation or uh, or a situation like you've been in where you know there's criminal activity and it's a pretty high stakes situation, how do you get into the rhythm of that? And what do you do to start off the interaction? That's a great question. And that's really where we've taken the idea of empathy and moved it on down the line to what I refer to as tactical empathy. Because, all right, so let's start looking for things specifically. In a, in a hostage situation, we're looking specifically for two things. We're looking for their fear, their losses, a recent loss, and anger. And if, they, if it's some sort of a hostage situation, something's happened recently which triggered their decision-making that got them into this. In a hostage case, is usually something in the last 24 to 72 hours, probably the last 24 hours. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to have result in anger, and then with anger, they make a decision and they move forward in a way that doesn't make sense. Business negotiation, interestingly enough, there's some psychologists that say that everything decision we make is based on fear of loss. What are we going to lose if we don't make this decision? So I know in advance, if somebody's talking to me, they're struggling with a concern, which is another word for fear. Business people don't like to see themselves as fear-driven, but they will say, yeah, we have concerns. So what are the, what are the terms I'm, I'm listening for, what their concerns are, what their fears are? They're not driven by anger, but they're driven by fear. And the biggest decision-maker, the biggest trigger to decision is gain and loss. And people will go more out of their way to avoid a loss than they will to accomplish a gain. Rationally, they could be talking about the exact same amount of money. But psychologically, a loss feels at least twice as bad as a gain, which is why the reason many salespeople say, you know, we got to show eight times value to get somebody to buy. Well, then that contends that a loss feels eight times as much as a gain, and that's why you got to show eight times value. In a personal interaction, you know, first I know in advance I'm looking for fear. I might see anger if the fear is buried enough, or I might see an enormously controlling attitude someone who's determined to control every step of the way, you know, they've been stung by loss and fear so many times. They got this veneer of, I have to have control and I'm always looking for you to betray me. But that, that's, again, that's fear driven and what their worries are, their loss are. So I look for those things in business deals. One of the things that was interested in hearing you talk in another interview somewhere on just how you start a conversation is that, you like to stop and listen first and listen to what the other party has to say. And it, 
I was thinking about that in context, just some of the recent articles um, that I've read on on the anchoring effect of, you know, thinking about it from a business standpoint, you know, whoever names a number first, a lot of times anchors the conversation at that amount and you end up negotiating around that amount. But I'm, I'm curious, is that a false assumption or is that, I mean, do you look at it that way? Because it sounds like you clearly like to spend time really listening first before you start anchoring the conversation. Yeah, I worry about anchors and, and there's a phrase, I never lost money on a deal I didn't make. Well, that's not true. And that's why people like to anchor high. But they don't take into account the amount of money they lost because they left money on the table. I have a very high speaking fee. And I find that if I throw out my speaking fee first, a lot of conversations just don't continue. We've lost a lot of deals with high anchor. But if I start talking about intangibles and starting to try to trigger the other side first, I can get a good feel out of them that first of all, no matter what my fee is, maybe there's only so much they can pay in terms of dollars, but they might have intangibles that are ridiculously valuable to me. Mm. I'm greedy. I want those ridiculous intangibles that they can give to me easy. It costs them very little, but it's massively valuable to me. I'm talking at a regional conference in Boston earlier this year. They can't pay me a dime. We begin talking. We find out they can place an article in their national publication that has a readership of 22,000 people. That's hugely valuable to me. The national likes to do it because this is a way for them to help the local chapter that they can't spend a dime on. But this is a way to get a great speaker into the local chapter for nothing. If I'd have thrown out my, my, my fee at the very beginning, everybody would have walked away because nobody could, nobody could afford it. So high anchoring works if people stay in the deal. That doesn't account for the number of people that simply turn and walk away, which means a deal was there to be made that could have been profitable for both of us and it got away from me. And that really bothers me. That's why I don't high anchor. Well, and that's fascinating because you're doing what you've, you've talked about all along, which is you're taking the time to listen to find out what else is there. It's getting that better deal that you didn't even necessarily know was there when you started the conversation by engaging in that conversation and not doing that. That's exactly right. And, and, I, and I love that. You know, and, and my staff, that's the way that we negotiate. Although the recent deal that we have is my director of operations negotiated a deal where he gets a, included. They're talking about giving him a free week at a boat show in Florida. And I'm like, wait, 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 <laughs> wait, wait. Why are you getting a week at the boat show? Why am I not getting this? So, uh, <laughs> Sounds like he's learned your lessons pretty well. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You should take it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of negotiation, I couldn't help but notice a comment you made uh, somewhere in the fact that you were the only FBI agent that got sent to Harvard's negotiation course. And... I was thinking about that in the context of our audience, who often needs to make the case to someone in their organization to fund something in their professional development or to send them to a conference. And that that's not always the easiest conversation to have. You've clearly done that with some success with a government agency. What's the case you made in, in that situation? And how did you approach that? You know, I pegged a lot of that on, we had had a case a kidnapping case. It didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to. So again, then I'm, I'm 
I'm leveraging off of loss. And loss spurs people to action. And so having had a loss, then my approach was like, look, we, gotta, we, got, we have to get better. We, we can't let this happen again. And I happened to be working with people that were very forward thinking, and there was a lot of support up and down the line. So I said, you know, let me, let me go up, let me go up and just meet these guys and pitch it and see what happens. And, you know, once we got started, then of course, then the interaction then became part of our status quo because I, I got support for a very limited amount of training, which is primarily to go up and introduce myself and offer to collaborate with them. And, and they had, the Harvard guys were phenomenal from the beginning. I mean, they saw the overlap sooner than I ever did. And as I began to talk to them, then as that collaboration evolved, then I took the, our position for now this is not something new, which is untested and people are afraid of new things. This was now the relationship was part of a status, status quo, and now I'm just going to try to amplify this. We see this pretty frequently in the business community. People will go further with something that they view as being part of the status quo. So I, you know, I got it part of our status quo, and, and then I just built on it from there. Nice, nice. Well, and I've noticed you've you've done some really amazing collaboration with, you know, some of the past guests on this show, Sheila Heen and uh, Adam Grant, and and done some things to to further that conversation. And I'm I'm really excited about this book. It is going to become my go to recommendation for negotiation now, having having gone through it and just seen the value of how you approach this. So, Chris, I really appreciate your time and your perspective. I know our audience is really going to value this as well. Thank you, David. And you, and you mentioned a couple of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, Sheila Heen is amazingly brilliant and a great friend. And I consider myself very lucky to know her. Chris Voss is the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Thanks a ton, Chris. Thanks, David. It was a lot of fun being on with you. The very best way to get access to the key points and resources mentioned in every episode is to subscribe to the weekly leadership guide. You can do that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. It is an email that comes to your inbox on Wednesday after the Monday show. It includes the detailed show notes, key points that I think are most important for you, the resources we've mentioned, all the things Chris mentioned during the show, and also includes some of the articles, videos, other podcasts I've listened to that I think will support your leadership development between the episodes. And in addition, when you join that guide for the first time, you will get to download my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that I think will help you to get better results from others. And Chris's book might be an upcoming candidate for a revision on that list. I have to tell you of of, of several people I've talked to who have now read this book, it is, including me, it is really a fabulous read. If you are doing any kind of negotiating at all, which we all are, but if it's part of your work on a regular basis in any capacity, you've got to check it out. So again, the access for all of that, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. In addition, uh, several other related episodes in the catalog that will also support you in continuing to develop this skill set of negotiation or just handling difficult conversations in general 
She Laheen is uh, one of the folks Chris has worked with in the past at Harvard, and Sheila was on the show a couple of years ago, and the title of that episode was Accepting Feedback. It's episode number 143. In that episode, Sheila talks about her favorite question for soliciting feedback. It has now become my favorite question for soliciting feedback, and if you're looking for a good strategy on how to get better feedback from others, definitely check out episode 143, and you'll find that question there. Also, we mentioned Adam Grant. His work has informed a lot of the thinking on human behavior in the last few years. He's out of Wharton, and he was on the show earlier this year on how to be a nonconformist. That's episode 238. Check that out as well. And then finally, Therese Houston was on the show just recently talking about how women make stronger, smarter choices. And we talked also in that episode about negotiation, and she has some good strategies in that episode as well. That's at episode 255. And of course, the way to get access to all those past episodes is just to go to Coaching for Leaders dot com slash the episode number. But don't worry if you don't remember the numbers because those will all be in the weekly leadership guide for those of you who get that. Again, that's coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe to get access to the week the weekly leadership guide if I can talk. Hey, next week on the show I'm welcoming back my friend who's returning, I think for her fourth or fifth appearance on Coaching for Leaders, Susan Gerke, who's an expert in teams. She is going to be returning to the show to teach us how to benefit from conflict, a pretty closely related topic to today's episode. I hope that you will join us for that conversation as well. Have a fabulous week, and I look forward to talking with you again next Monday. Take care.